The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks so much for listening to the show where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Well, I, uh, I want to thank all of you who uh, took the time and the trouble to comment uh, warmly and positively about last week's show. Uh, last week's show, you might remember, uh, was a show in which I spoke about a change, particularly in business, but uh, also in areas of home, family, uh, social relationships, where change is almost inevitable. Uh, what I did is I uh, played for you, I, I made the show a replay of a speech I had done that week uh, for a business group. And uh, it's always a bit iffy when I uh, replay a speech for you because the audio is not up to usual level. But, um, of course, I don't know those of you who were unhappy about it and switched off and didn't bother to listen and certainly didn't bother to write and tell me. But uh, for those of you who did uh, write to tell me that you enjoyed it, I appreciate it very much. And I might actually even uh, have another few because I'm on a brief visit to Dallas in which I'm squeezing five speeches into a few days. So um, of those five, it's very possible that at least two will be appropriate for this show, and I'm going to listen to them carefully after I finish them, and I'm going to see if uh, they are speeches that I think you might enjoy as well. But uh, that was last week. This week, however, is um, a little bit sad because New York got struck by Islam one more time. Uh, we all remember the Tuesday morning on the uh, on the um, 9th of September of, of November uh, 2001 uh, well it was another sunny Tuesday morning or t actually Tuesday afternoon in New York when a guy called Saifulo Saipov you know what I shouldn't have mentioned his name why why perpetuate his name uh, may his name be forgotten but uh, he's a 29-year-old Uzbek guy uh, who killed eight people by using the time-tested, standardized ISIS method of renting a truck and driving it through a crowd. Uh, it's been done in Nice. It's been done in, in, uh, in I think it was done in, in Stockholm or in uh, Oslo. It's, it's been done in a lot of places. And, uh, and um, uh, Saifullo is in no way embarrassed about his ISIS connection. He asked for an ISIS flag for his hospital room. A, uh, a policeman, a very fast-acting and quick-thinking policeman who was actually in the area investigating a, a problem at one of the local schools. Shocking, right? A problem in one of New York's gigs, government indoctrination camps, otherwise known as public schools. Would you believe it, needing to call the police? Um, anyone remember such a thing happening prior to 1962? I don't think so. Police did not get called to schools in America prior to 1962. Welcome to the leftist paradise that we've created over the last years. Well, anyway, policeman is busy uh, taking care of this. Here's a problem outside, runs outside, and finds this, uh, this guy, uh, Saifullo, who's already run down a lot of his victims, and shoots him. Unfortunately, Saifullo survives and is being taken care of with the very best of American medicine in a Manhattan hospital, as I record these words. Um, right after that, on MSNBC, Chris Matthews says... And I, I'm not quoting him verbatim. I don't have his words directly in front of me. But if you're interested, you won't have any trouble finding them. It's, this is very close to what he said. 
I cannot understand what he has against America. His, America's been good to him. He's done well over here. I can't see why he would have done this. That was Chris Matthews. And um, I'm not going to say, you know, oh, what an idiot he is. I, I don't want to say that because I don't think you, you end up being a, a television commentator if you're an idiot. So I don't think that's an explanation for, for what he said. Um, then, um, then in the Wall Street Journal uh, this past Thursday, uh, Matthew Hennessy, who is um, one of the feature editors at the Journal and uh, a very good writer, uh, wrote a piece, My City Got Hit Again Tuesday and nearly in the same spot as the hit it took on Tuesday long ago. Eight people died when a religious fanatic from Uzbekistan allegedly turned a rented pickup truck into a murder weapon on the Hudson River bike path not far from the World Trade Center complex in Lower Manhattan. The attack reminded all New Yorkers of a fear we try hard to suppress. Uh, I was 19 in 1993 when a terrorist cell under the direction of Omar Abdul Rahman, uh, the so-called blind sheik, killed six people with a truck bomb in the Trade Center's parking garage. Uh, he speaks, he said, on 9-11 I was 27 and living in a basement apartment in Queens. Like most New Yorkers, I'd pretty much forgotten about the 93 attack. Like most Americans, I was ignorant about what we now call radical Islam. That clear beard, that clear beard, that clear blue Tuesday, sorry. I was booked to fly to London for an acting gig along with my girlfriend. I watched the towers fall from the departure lounge in Kennedy Airport. Um, as I did, I said to myself, what is the purpose of this? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, Matthew writes, the flight and the acting gig were both canceled. The engagement wasn't. The girlfriend is now my wife. 16 years later, I still haven't been to London. And um, he says, but now at least uh, New Yorkers are no longer saying why. Uh, as he says, as he wraps up his article, I no longer wonder who would do such things or what they're about. I know what's going on. Those who plow trucks into crowds and slaughter innocent people are enemies of freedom. They have no respect for human life. They aren't sick. They aren't confused. They know exactly what they're doing and exactly what they want. They want me and everyone like me to walk around terrified that instant death is always a moment away. And they think it's all for the glory of God. Well, they can go to hell. And that's how Matthew uh, Hennessy concludes his article in the Wall Street Journal. Um, well, I'm not 100% sure that he's exactly right. I, uh, I, I don't know if it's just that they're enemies of freedom. Um, I think he, he may be overlooking... Um, something broader and, and perhaps more precise. Uh, and he may not be overlooking it. He may just realize that there are limits as to what the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, even the Wall Street Journal, will print these days. But uh, uh, it's, it's more than just enemies of freedom. Um, they are enemies of Christianity. And they see America as a bastion of Christianity. They're also against Judaism, and they see Israel as a bastion of Judaism, and they sense some connection between America and Israel, uh, Judeo-Christian countries, Bible-based countries, and uh, they are at war. So I think Matthew Hennessy goes a long way towards it. Chris Matthews doesn't begin to, to get it, but, uh, but I think one has to go just a little bit further in order to understand that. Um, when we come back, uh, I want to tell you about what was going on in 1942 when Germany was um, invading Russia, and for the very first time in World War II, the, Germanies, the Germans ran into uh, obstacles and problems that they had never experienced in the war up to this point. And uh, there again, it's important that one understands what other people are all about. In the piece I did last week and in subsequent speeches, um, I've often spoken about how important it is to be anchored to the unchangeable things in your life. 
Because when you're anchored to the unchangeable things, that leaves you the psychic and emotional freedom to adapt and adjust to the things that, that are changing. So uh, it, this doesn't only apply to us. You also have to recognize it in our enemies as well. You have to know what are the real unchanging things among our enemies. What are the things that they are absolutely locked into? And as long as we fail to grasp what drives Islam at its very heart, it's going to be really tough to survive, let alone defeat them. And the same was true in World War II. Let me tell you a bit about that as soon as we come back. The, uh, um, the, the audio program that um, Susan and I prepared for you a little while back uh, that I want to alert you to in the current context um, is called Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. And I do believe that uh, not only in the Middle East conflict, but everywhere Islam is at war with the West. And uh, you don't need me to give you the list of incidents. East Africa, Bali, Australia, throughout Europe, the United Kingdom, and of course the, the sad incidents we've had in the United States going back to 93. And it did take us an awfully long time to even begin to wake up. But I'm not sure that the, the wake up is, uh, is yet complete. But in Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam, um, we, uh, we go back and show you how there are certain characteristics embedded within people, within a nation, within a group, not within any one individual, but within groups. And the more grouped you are, the more those characteristics come into, uh, into, into uh, reality. So I'm not going to say it's genetic, because if they're genetic, they show up in individuals as well. They're not genetic, but what they are are um, cultural things. Cultural, let's call it cultural genetics. I'll explain what I'm talking about just as soon as we come back. But the website is rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, there you will be able to look up uh, Cody, Clash of Destiny, the Clash of Destiny, Decoding Secrets of Israel and Islam. And it's a two-hour program that uh, it'll leave you completely astounded, but as if a giant flashlight, a giant spotlight, a great, a great, a great big laser beam has lit up the geopolitical landscape. You may as well really understand what is going on, or in other words, how the world really works. After all, that's what your rabbi's for. Be right back. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. You remember me saying in a previous segment, I was talking about how uh, cultural genetics kicks in, particularly uh, when you're in a group. And, uh, and I've, I've noticed this uh, many times in, in many, many different contexts. Uh, for instance, um, I know people who left New York, you know, maybe 20 years ago, and uh, they moved to Seattle. 30 years ago in some cases, they moved to Seattle. And um, there is absolutely nothing about New York in those people anymore. It's just not there. 
And you know what I mean by that, right? It's, it's a certain way of speaking. It's an aggressiveness. It's a competitiveness. It's, it's feeling personally aggrieved if somebody gets into a lane, a car in front of you, or if, uh, or if, um, uh, if somebody makes it to the supermarket checkout cashier ahead of you. These are some of, the, some of the less pleasant characteristics of New Yorkers, and there are many more. Uh, and yet, I, uh, I have friends who've lived in laid-back places, you know, like Seattle, uh, people who've, who've lived in um, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, people who've lived in Miami from New York. Actually, Miami is a bad example. I'll tell you why in a moment. And as I say, there's not a minuscule, microscopic morsel of New York remaining in these people. But as has sometimes happened, um, I've sometimes traveled to New York with one of them or another, or sometimes met one of them. I've said, you know, I've got business in New York, and they say, oh, I'm going to be in New York next week. Uh, I'd love to show you around. Okay, fine. Now, guess what they're like when they're back in New York? All the old characteristics come flooding back, and they are literally indistinguishable from New Yorkers. It's hilarious. Why? Because when you are reunited with your tribe, when you are reconnected with that cultural group, its cultural genetics flow back into your system. <laughs> That's what happens. Um, it, uh, it happens, I've noticed, with some African-American friends also who um, have, uh, have, have moved away from the, uh, the, the, the kind of speech patterns that are common, particularly among youth, black uh, American youth, and they've um, and, and they've sort of you know just adopted sort of more ordinary, conventional Western uh, Euro uh, European or American patterns, just talking. What happens when they are back together with a group? And again, it's it's the most amusing thing, and I've spoken to them about it. We laugh about it. It's almost uh, it's almost inevitable. Um, their speech patterns revert back to black speech. Um, it happens to me. My accent, my foreign accent, accentuates, people tell me, when I am in the company of, uh, of other people from England or South Africa or, or Australia, and, uh, and it just it kicks in. So um, there, are, there are reasons for that, and, uh, and I think perhaps I won't take time uh, in this show to, to delve into the reasons with you. But I think what is important to realize then that um, is that you can know a, a Muslim person. You can be friends with a Muslim person. You can know him for a while, and uh, maybe for years and years, and everything is wonderful, and, uh, and you, 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 know, you say he's different, and he's absolutely not part of it, and he may well be but he also may not be. What could happen is cultural genetics kick in. In other words, he either uh, gets involved with friends who, are, who look at Islam uh, in a more active kind of practical jihadi kind of a way, or, um, or he starts reading things, or he goes through some kind of uh, internal spiritual realignment that puts him there. But whatever it is, the cultural genetics kick in. There is value in understanding what the cultural genetics are of the groups that uh, you're talking about or looking into or involved with. And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting that uh, we cannot trust the popular culture at all on issues like cultural genetics. You absolutely cannot because um, the left believes that absolutely nothing is genetic except homosexuality, of course, or transgenderism, Just it's just genetic. But if you speak about uh, male-female genetic, I mean, something as profoundly fundamental and important as male and female characteristics, yeah, I think you could say that they're genetically present, 
But no, the left refuses to accept that, rejects it completely. The idea that uh, intelligence has a genetic component, absolutely out of the question. But homosexuality, oh yeah, that's genetic, no question about that. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. It's so manifestly unreasonable and inconsistent. So I, I'm just saying, please don't ever tell me, well, um, this professor or this university or this study said, because it's really completely irrelevant. And you have to use your own intelligence, your own spirit of inquiry, and you've got to try and find the answers by yourself rather than simply going for what experts say or studies reveal. Now, I said I would uh, tell you something about um, uh, Germans. Okay, so the Nazis tapped into a lingering, very old cultural genetics meme. And, um, and it, it's not as if it's Germanic in nature. It was Germanic in nature in those years, 1930 through 1945. And maybe a little later than that. But, um, but the notion that Germans today are all possessed of this evil mut mutant gene of anti-Semitism is simply not true. It's not true. And uh, while I know that uh, for people who either themselves suffered in the Holocaust or have or lost relatives, uh, what I'm about to say, obviously, is, is painful, and I don't mean it in that way. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of assuming that I probably don't have a lot of listeners in that category. Uh, for those that are, I apologize. I certainly don't mean to hurt you, but I'm, I'm just telling you that I have, on several occasions, really enjoyed being in Germany, okay, because I don't see it as irretrievably tarnished, all right? There was a, a disease, a cultural genetic disease that infected that nation for those years, and as I say, I'm not going to go into now discussions of how or, or, or why, but there is such a cultural uh, gene in the world. And at that point, the Nazis picked up on it. Today, the Islamic world has picked up on it. So today, you will find that among Muslims, you won't find that anymore in Germany for the most part. So uh, what am I talking about? Well, you've got to re realize that the Nazis fully understood what their relationship was with Jews. They recognized, not just Adolf Hitler, but they all recognized that the entire purpose of World War II was to rid the world of Jews in exactly the same way as in Scripture, the nation of Amalek tried to do just that. And uh, uh, many histories of World War II, by the way, will tell you of this incredible reality, which I'm about to describe to you. Um, but you know what? Let me move it into the next segment, okay? Uh, I just want to sort of try today to keep these segments of, of reasonable length for a timing experiment of my own. But um, the, uh, a, a lot of the background to what I'm telling you, a lot of the uh, details, biblical sources, as well as other information of what I'm telling you, including, by the way, how Muhammad Atta and the other Muslims of 9-11 got their inspiration from mid-20th century Nazi material. It's fascinating. All of that is in the audio program called Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. So uh, when you have a minute, please head over to rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, take advantage of this. Order yourself a copy Maybe you need one for a friend. Maybe it's uh, as a gift. You will find it uh, mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. Anyway, you can read more about it at rabbidaniellappin.com. Be right back. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Okay, we're back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And uh, 
the cultural genetics is a reality in, in certain aspects and in certain things. So uh, the idea that something that the Muslims practice today was last seen in the world in the mid-20th century with the Nazis and was seen many times before that and it goes back all the way to the Bible. This shouldn't be that shocking. It just means getting used to uh, something that is an unusual piece of information. You may have to get over some cognitive dissonance, right? The idea that the Bible, some, a document of 3,000 years vintage, has something of relevance to say to today's news headlines, uh, it can take a little while to get yourself wrapped around that revolutionary concept. But anyways, um, let's go back to some history of World War II. This stuff's pretty well recorded, by the way. Um, I know, I know 1942 feels a long, a long way ago, and it is a long way ago, but it's close enough that uh, there are very, very good documentary uh, materials available on this. So um, it's, um, it's 1942, mid-1942. Germany has invaded Russia, and it's turning into a disaster. The Nazis have not had any disasters. Um, this is the first setback Germany has suffered since hostilities began. Remember, war broke out September 39. The Nazis just rolled right along, right? All of 1940, 1941, everything is going well, and the world is pretty much betting on them, right? The, the sound money is saying, you know what? These guys are going to dominate Europe. There's going to be a United States of Europe under Nazism. That's how it's going to be. And, this, you know, this is not such an un unlikely outcome. I mean, this is the way of the world. And they had, Germany had built up such an incredibly powerful army, and the West had essentially uh, surrendered and slid down the, the slope of uh, decadence into close to uh, complete oblivion. The, the willingness to fight on the West did not happen until Churchill took over the uh, prime ministership of uh, England from uh, Mr. Chamberlain. Um, and that was after the start of the World War, really. The West was not willing to fight. Remember, America certainly wasn't involved, and uh, England was, was talking surrender. So now, for the first time, it's um, 1942, and... The Russians, and now at this point, part of the Allies, because they're fighting the Nazis, strange sort of allies, but there it is. And um, the, uh, the, the Allies have a new ally. It's called Winter. Now, you know, one of the strange things about Adolf Hitler is that, uh, and it, there are reasons for this, there are explanations for this, but, um, you know, if there was one thing you'd have wanted to whisper in his ear, while he was planning Operation Barbarossa, the surprise uh, attack on a former ally, namely uh, the Russians, um, if there's one thing you'd want to whisper in his ear, as it was already late 1942, is, hello, does the word Napoleon mean anything to you? Back early in the 19th century, a little more than 100 years ago, he also tried to invade Russia. And like you, he also acted as if he had all the time in the world. And instead of attacking early in the spring, he attacked late in the fall. And guess what happened? He got wiped out. Well, between Russian armies, Russian civilians, and an unusually cold winter, Millions of German casualties resulted, really, millions. Uh, it's unbelievable. This was, I mean, they never had anything like this happen. Uh, German supply lines are overextended. Machinery is not only running out of oil, but the machine, you know, tanks and trucks, but the oil they do have is solidifying in the cold weather, and it's not doing its job. I mean, it's unbelievable. The remaining uh, men are exhausted hungry, freezing, their, their clothing wasn't, wasn't equipped uh, for this kind of weather. 
So the German high command uh, came, the military high command, came to Hitler with a wonderful idea which totally would have turned things around in Germany's favor on that collapsing Eastern Front. Here was what they suggested. There are over 10,000 well-fed, well-rested SS officers directing exterminations at the concentration camps in Germany and Poland. In addition, there were thousands of carriages of railway trucks, uh, rolling stock, that were being used to transport Jews from everywhere around occupied Europe to these extermination camps. So the Wehrmacht officers uh, came to Adolf Hitler in this important meeting and they said, all you have to do, I mean, the, the Eastern Front is, is collapsing. Um, the, uh, the siege of Stalingrad has turned into a siege of the German besieging army. And what you've got to do, they said to the Fuhrer, is temporarily reassign all those 10,000 SS officers to salvage the front at Stalingrad and temporarily use all the concentration camp transport trains to move the fresh men and a whole lot of military material to the front. Food, oil, clothing, all the things that could prop up that collapsing Eastern Front. Um, Hitler came close to throwing a tantrum. He instantly refused their request and angrily dismissed them, taunting them for their failure to grasp the central purpose of World War II. That is the important thing. In other words, he was angry with them for not realizing that the killing of Jews was not collateral damage in World War II. It was the prime purpose. That was Hitler's view. And um, Adolf Hitler who was the high-ranking, excuse me, not Adolf Hitler, Adolf Eichmann, the high-ranking Nazi, uh, who not only had the responsibility of carrying out the final solution, but carried out his mission with great zeal, he also provides evidence that the real Nazis knew and understood that this was all about the Jews. Have to eliminate the presence of Jews in the world. And when Adolf Eichmann and his mechanized murder squads followed the German army into Poland and began their grisly work, he first gave a newsreel press conference, which was widely shown around the world. It's extraordinary. You can still see it. And he literally warns Polish Jewry. He says, I'm coming for you. And, you know, this they're talking about the invasion of Poland. There's so much to talk about. But all he talks about is he's coming for the Polish Jews. And he uses these haunting German words. Dieses Jahr es gibt kein Purim. This year, he said, there will not be any Purim. Purim is the festival of Esther, detailed in the book of uh, Esther. And for those of you that are interested... Early in the book of Esther, in the first chapter, uh, we discover that the lineage of the man who is the, uh, if you like, the Nazi equivalent, the man who is uh, arranging for the extermination of all the world's Jews back in, in that story in, in Persia, Iran, by the way, uh, he is descended directly from the Amalekites, who are the one group of people in Scripture who were charged with the task of wiping out the Jews from all the world. Uh, in, um, in the uh, program I'm talking to you about, namely uh, um, Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam, um, I speak much about the link between the Nazis and today's modern Islam, and uh, I uh, explain just how that genetic germ, if you like, that genetical cultural germ made the leap across space and time to move from Germany 1940 to the Middle East circa 1960, 70, 80, 90, 2000, how that germ made that leap and infected the Muslim world. 
to the point where you could offer the countries surrounding Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, you could, you could offer them untold wealth, improved health, education for their children. But if that offer included the survival of Israel, their response is, no deal. I don't think Chris Matthews would get it. He'd say, I don't understand. Why would they turn down such an offer? But it's really not that hard to understand at all. More on that just as soon as we come back here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks so much for being part of the show, and uh, thanks again for spreading the word of the show. The word is getting around even more and more. The show is getting better and better known. I run into more and more people who listen to it. I hear from more and more people by email. By the way, that's something else you can do at the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, you can read up more about the uh, the Clash of Destiny. You can also order it. You can also shoot me a, an email. All of that at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Be right back. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Pat Gray. You know as well as I do that just pointing out what's gone wrong, it's not enough. We need to find some solutions. There's a gigantic anaconda of oppression that's squeezing the life out of the United States of America right now. We're being slowly suffocated and crushed to death. It's broken our moral compass, and without that, we're adrift. We're just blown back and forth by the winds of progress and social justice. Pat Gray. Weekdays, noon to 3 Eastern, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Here we are back again together at the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, thank you all. Appreciate you being part of the show where I remain solemnly dedicated to revealing how the world really works. Yeah, right. Uh, so we're talking about... Uh, the bewilderment that many on the left feel when these acts are conducted, when these acts of brutality and savagery are uh, carried out by uh, Muslims. Uh, look, you, you've got to sympathize with folks on the left because they start off with a given that religion is primitive, tribalistic, irrelevant to modern life, and they also believe that they are living in a world that is becoming increasingly rational, increasingly scientific, and uh, a world in which religion is rapidly becoming relegated uh, to as a, as a refuge for the, for the primitive. And so um, the idea that a religion called Islam has something to do with the behavior of people is outrageous. Look, they even mock the idea that Christianity shapes the behavior of people. Have you noticed the sheer glee and delight which with, with which secularists seize upon any instance they can find in the news of misbehavior by a Christian? They love that. And again, with more than 100 million seriously committed Christians in America, right? it's not that improbable that, you know, a few times a year, somebody, and even somebody in, in, in a prominent position, is going to, to suffer a fall. We are human beings. We get it. It happens. But instead of being able to give it the same sort of pass that, uh, shall we say, Bill Clinton was given, uh, no, they seize upon it. They love it. Why? Because what it shows them is, see, Christianity doesn't shape people's behavior. Religion is not significant. All that matters is psychology and genetics, and government programs, and incentives, and poverty. Those are the things that cause 
people to behave in certain ways. But that a religion shapes behavior out of the question. Impossible. Refuse to accept it. Nonsense. And that's one of the reasons that they completely reject the link between Islam and terrorism. There's got to be another explanation. But it's not a religion. Okay. You know, none, none so blind as those who will not see. And uh, what is it that they're failing to see? What they're failing to see is the idea of a central cultural organizing principle. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, businesses should have such a thing. Um, businesses like Nordstrom, uh, the clothing store, businesses like the medical supply company Johnson & Johnson are just two that spring to mind that are companies that have an incredibly clear central cultural organizing principle, something that new employees can quickly be taught and that they can then be taught how to act in accordance with that single important central organizing principle. It's very important for business, and we also, each and every one of us, have to have things like that in our lives. Um, let me give you an example. Many people tell me that uh, the central organizing principle in their lives is God. Right? I've got Christian and Jewish friends who say that, and I explain to them, I'm afraid that's not really a central organizing principle. Because although God is a strong central reality, it's not a central organizing principle. I'll tell you why. Because it doesn't specify any particular conduct and prohibit any other specific conduct. So, uh, you know, you might say that, um, you know, you're going to do a certain thing in your business, and it's because you're doing it for God, right? And it's really difficult to come up with things that would be uh, unequivocally prohibited under that rubric. Very, very difficult. So, instead of which, I strongly recommend that people reduce that to something very specific. A central organizing principle in my business is that I will never distort the truth, even in the slightest way, because that's what God expects of me. Now you're talking. That's different. Um, you might say, if you're, uh, if you're Jewish, you might say, a central organizing principle of my business is, I will never work after the sun goes down on Friday, until after dark on Saturday night. For those 25 hours, no matter what happens, I won't work because that is in accordance with the instructions God gave me. That's a strong central organizing principle. You can do that. But uh, once you've got a central organizing principle, okay, and by the way, you don't have to have only one. You can have several central organizing principles. There's such a thing as having too much where they just all fade away in the uh, confusion of having too many. But you can have three for sure. Uh, maybe one of the central organizing principles of your business is um, cash is king. We do not ignore the cash flow statement for a single week. Right? That, that's a strong central organizing principle. Um, and again, an important one. That's a good one. But... Uh, Having things like that as clear organizing principles give you freedom to adapt to change because that way you know that if something comes along, that seems like a very good idea. It's a, it's a reaction to change that is taking place and somebody comes to you and says, this is what we ought to do. And the only problem is that it'll kill cash flow for the next six weeks. You're now able to say, sorry, I cannot do it. I was interested in what you were saying. I cannot do anything that kills cash flow for the next six weeks. That's just some, I, you know, I can, uh, I can adjust on other areas, but not cash flow. Maybe, you know, if that was one of your central organizing principles. So that becomes very helpful, very useful. It's important to understand not only our own central organizing principles, but other people's as well. It's really important because... Uh, you know, if you are in sales, and my belief is that everyone except people who sit on the Supreme Court of the United States 
and people who are tenured professors at American universities and people who work for the government and are therefore also unfireable, everybody else is in sales. You know, you're selling your customers, you're selling clients, you're even selling your boss on the fact that you're doing a good job or you're selling your boss and giving you a raise. But the action, the process of selling is part of our interaction with other people. And it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I, I, that's not a complaint. It's a reality. And it's a good thing. And everyone should become adept at selling. It's part of education. It's a very bad thing to get through uh, your education and not know how to sell. It's just a bad thing. When you do sell, you really have to learn about whether you're uh, the person you are trying to sell, either on an idea or a service or a goods or whatever it is, uh, teachers, by the way, should be excellent sales professionals. They're not often, but they should be. And uh, if, uh, if you are trying to uh, make a sale of whatever kind to anybody, you really need to know what that person's central organizing principles are, is or are, what they are, because that way you will be able to tailor your approach in a way that is, uh, will find hospitable ears. But it's very easy to come up with your standard regular spiel and uh, it, it falls on deaf ears because you are violating a central organizing principle. Well, uh, look, um, we have to understand that um, uh, central organizing principles uh, sometimes come into conflict and that's why you really need to know what ultimately matters, uh, family and business. Right? Very often there is a time where you have to miss your kid's ball game and be at a sales call or a business meeting. By the way, I don't at all agree with people who say, oh, I'd never miss my children's ball game in for, uh, uh, if I'd, 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 because of business. I think it's a really bad, bad lesson you're telling your kids, by the way. You're telling them that playing games is more important than taking care of business. I think it's a terrible lesson and uh, not one that makes sense at all. But, uh, but there are other more serious ones. For instance, uh, how's about where work is increasing the number of days you have to be apart from your spouse? How many days are you and your spouse willing to be apart from one another every month for business? You've got to decide because part of your marriage is that being together is a central organizing principle. How much are you willing to, to sacrifice? That's something you have to decide. And it's putting into conflict your priorities of business and family. You've got to make a decision. In the final analysis, you've got to decide which one prevails, which one is the priority, because priority is a singular word. I don't even think the word exists in the plural. My, I have three priorities. No, you don't. You have three important things, but you've got to decide which one is the priority. And uh, when um, left-leaning pundits do not understand why are these people doing these things, and hey, why, what a strange coincidence, why are so many of them of Muslim background? I mean, I know that has nothing to do with what they're doing, but why? What's happening there is very simple. And that is they are oblivious of the central organizing principle of Islam. I'm not saying every single Muslim. I know there are strains of Islam that don't take Islam seriously, just as there are strains of Judaism called Reform Judaism, which don't take the laws of Judaism seriously. They may take the religion of Judaism seriously, but not the laws. There are certainly Muslims who don't take the, the laws of Islam seriously, and that has an impact, obviously, but in general, the laws of Islam, the Hadith, the Sharia, these things are not in doubt. And, uh, and it, it's very, very clear that when uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acts of terror are committed and the, uh, the terrorists make no secret of their commitment to Allah, then you begin to get the idea of what a central organizing principle of Islam is. Now, if you don't get that, you really cannot understand what made this person who I will not name this last Tuesday drive a truck through a, uh, a walking path and a bike path in lower Manhattan and kill eight, eight people. Some of them were tourists. Uh, 
But if you understand that, if you get it, then you know why he did it. And this is one of the reasons that the Las Vegas massacre continues to mystify so many people. Because it would make perfect sense if ISIS was involved. At that point, we say, okay, fine, we get it. Right? We're angry, we, 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 uh, we don't like it, it was horrible, it was, it was unbelievable, but we get it. But at the moment, everybody feels that information is being withheld. You know, why did the security guard who was shot before the shooting began on the floor of the Mandalay Bay, why was he allowed out of the country? In any event, within days after being shot, was he really able to travel that easily? Where was he going? What was that all about? And, um, and the money that the uh, miscreant, that the murderer sent out to the Philippines a few days beforehand. And how about his girlfriend? Does she really not know anymore? And um, what about uh, Muslim cells in the Philippines? Uh, do we know any more about that? People are concerned because if he had been a Muslim or there had been a Muslim, we get it. Makes sense. We got it. Except the left, who absolutely and resolutely refuses to acknowledge the idea that religion could be a central organizing principle for anybody at all. That, my friends, is as far as we go. The website is rabbidaniellappin.com. I urge you to visit. Pick yourself up a copy of Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam, and uh, share with me. You'll be absolutely fascinated. I'd love to hear from you after you've heard it. Uh, by the way, it's a nice thing to do with other people, family members, children, siblings. Nice thing to do in company, to go through, to listen to this thing, and then have a chance to discuss the ideas that are raised in it. Uh, people get enormous benefit from that, and I'm passing on to you what I've heard from lots and lots of emails from folks who've tried that. Um, that's it as far as we can go. Until next week, I want to wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin.